That may be a bolide or something, and something looks as if it's landed behind that hill, because I must point out, yes, I'm sorry, that the kids all state categorically that this object, this large glowing object, which appeared to be about the size of a house, seemed to pause when it topped the hill, and then to sink, instead of going on, down in the sort of trajectory, it stopped and sank slowly down behind the hill, and they could see this light pulsing behind the crest of the hill. The group out way out in the distance saw some flashing lights. They were purplish, flaring up. The whole area became engulfed in this uh, mist, and it was described to me by the witnesses as uh, smelling like sulfur, and uh, it's that made him sick. Uh, I, my personal opinion, I just like to throw in, is that, that those um, none of those people were telling lies. Uh, those from Flatwoods, especially, that the 400 odd other people whom we interviewed, including the young man who reported to the police um, number three incident, the crash, and those young farmers, were certainly not not lying. They were a highly skeptical group. They did not believe in flying saucers if they'd heard of them. The country couldn't go public. I don't think. I mean, I'm not one for secrecy. I had a clearance for 14 years. But there are times when you have to say it's the lesser of evils to keep the public out of the picture. Some of them know what it was. They started pushing on through the area. They went up onto the back hill of the farm. They came to um, the gate. Some of the group passed over the gate. They started moving up a little bit further. And some of the witnesses saw this gigantic object sitting out in the field. But what had actually happened is after this object landed on the far mountaintop, it actually relocated into the gully of the farm. I was impressed with the witnesses, the location. Uh, and it's unique in the description of the, I'll call it the monster, because I don't know what else to call it. And. You know, people say, well, why would they go to some small town in West Virginia? Come on, there's nothing important going on there. We don't know what might have been mined, whether their sensors had picked up information. Uh, maybe, maybe they were doing a survey. The group keeps moving forward. Lemon and Kathleen May were the two uh, <coughs> oldest. He was 17 years old. She was 35. They're moving up, and off to their left, set about three to four foot back along the perimeter of the woods, they heard these weird noises. It was like hissing noises and thumping noises. As they moved closer into this area, there was a dog who had tagged along from the neighborhood, dashed off towards this tree. The dog yelped and barked and took back off and ran back down the hill. Subsequently, they found the dog dead later on. At 7.15 p.m., dusk, on September 12, 1952, a group of boys, mostly between the ages of 10 and 14, were playing football on the playground of their local elementary school in the rural town of Flatwoods, West Virginia, when they saw a low-flying, glowing object 
pulsing from cherry red to light orange as they described it, that looked to be on fire approaching them just over the trees. The object seemed to hesitate, then stopped, and then sank slowly down, just out of sight, onto what the boys knew was a hilltop on the nearby Bailey Fisher farm. They could all see the light pulsing just beyond the crest of the hill. Untrue to its name, Flatwoods, West Virginia, was very hilly, much like the rest of West Virginia, and covered mostly with trees, hills, and gullies, and these boys had explored every hill and gully and path within miles, so they knew where the mysterious craft or object had come down, and it was close. They did what any young boys would do upon seeing something come out of the skies. They ran to see what it was, but at first they went to the May house so Freddie and Ed May could tell their mom and hopefully get her to come with them. As they ran, a few of the boys said it was a meteorite. Others guessed it was a flying saucer. One of them turned back and said he didn't want any part of it. The gaggle of excited boys flew through the door of the May household, all talking at once, as Kathleen May tried to make sense out of what they were saying. Her 17-year-old cousin, Jean Lemon, who lived just down the road, was there as well. He had recently signed up for the West Virginia National Guard, and Kathleen hurriedly gathered the two flashlights they had in the house, and the group, now consisting of Kathleen, Jean, Freddie, Edward, plus Neil Nunley, age 14, Ronnie Shaver, age 10, and Tommy Heyer, age 12, began to head for the site. And as they passed other scattered homes, others joined. Twelve kids in all. As it turned out, the boys' guess as to its location was right. It, whatever it was, had landed in an open area on top of the wooden mountain. And they made the hike up the path to the top, first opening the metal gate and passing through, after which they tied it shut again. Then a little further up the path, climbing over a wooden fence that was blocking the path at a point closer to the top of the hill. As they got to the top, where there was a clearing, they could see a red glow coming from a large object that appeared to have landed blunt end down into a field. Fear crept up to their bodies and senses. It was now dark, and an odorous mist was present that added to a heightened sense of fear. All of them noticed a strange smell in the air, which Kathleen May later described as a smell like burning metal and sulfur. Along with this, she began to hear a hissing sound, which she described as a sound that bacon makes when it's frying. One of the boys who witnessed it would describe the smell years later like the ozone smell that you get from hot radio tubes after you turn off the appliance. All this was happening within a period of seconds. One of the dogs with them, a collie, had run ahead of them up the path and first began to bark and then growl at something that was obscured in the mist. It was now dark. When Gene aimed his flashlight toward the unknown object, his beam of light caught a tall figure standing not fifteen feet away from him and not a car's length away from Kathleen May. What they saw in those few brief moments of terror before they broke and ran would be burned in their memories for the remainder of their lives. Welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and another great story to add to our mysteries column. This one, a very interesting story of a highly unusual event that involved a fiery object appearing out of the sky and falling to earth, attracting immediate witnesses to the crash site, and the shocking discovery of what looked to be a UFO, outside of which stood, apart and in the darkness, a tall, helmeted or hooded figure, with a very frightening presence. This was an event which was witnessed by 12 people, 
on a night which included other very unusual sightings in the sky in other parts of the region, a night which instilled a terrible fear of the unknown into the families of a small West Virginia town, and a night which brought the Air Force quickly into the area to investigate. One of the people not connected with our government and who has given us a rich store of information was Frank Faschino, who has dedicated the past few decades to finding the truth behind what really happened at Flatwoods. Having relatives in that part of West Virginia, he was familiar with the area, although not Flatwoods specifically. He interviewed the witnesses and everyone involved in the Flatwoods incident, then researched other sightings across the U.S. that day and in the previous weeks, and he came up with some incredible information which lends insight to the probability that there was much more involved to the Flatwoods incident than meets the eye. Much of this information comes from his findings as well as those of other investigators, newspaper accounts, interviews, and articles. Another investigator named Ivan Sanderson filed a 36-page report in 1953 that included his research and the testimony of multiple witnesses not only in Flatwoods but from around the entire region. We offer links to videos for both Frank Faschino and Ivan Sanderson in our show notes, so make sure you catch those because that will really fill you in on a lot of the back details of this story. Here's what happened on that mountaintop. Gene Lemon was leading the group up the side of the hill on the Bailey Fisher farm that night, September 12, 1952, providing one of the only two lights. As they approached the clearing at the top of the hill, and once they passed the wooden fence, his dog ran ahead into the darkness and mist. His dog soon began barking, and then set up an eerie howl. Before they could get close enough to wherever the dog had been, the dog was running back past them down the hill. Kathleen and Jean's flashlight were searching the mist from which the dog had run, and there was just enough light that Jean could see the silhouette of a large oak, near which he could see what looked like glowing eyes, so he shifted his flashlight beam toward those eyes. By now they were standing very close to it, but there was enough mist to surround the object. The flashlight beams lit up a tall, solid figure about ten feet tall, standing under an overhanging branch. Its eyes at first emitting blue beams, which were pointing up to the heaven, and as the head on the figure slowly moved right and left, the two beams coming from its eyes searched the sky. At the same time that their flashlights lit up the ten-foot-high object, the object's head and eyes swung towards them, and the figure seemed to take on a life of its own, its eyes and frame radiating light. At that point, Kathleen May described a rumbling sound coming from within, followed immediately by a hissing, and at that point they noticed that the hissing was producing some type of mist from the object. Beginning near the top of the figure, most noticeable was a glass mask of some sort, in a way like an astronaut's helmet. The head of the object surrounded by a pointed cowl, through the glass face of which glowed two eyes which had changed from blue to orange as it pointed toward the members in the group. These eyes were set almost like portholes which allowed light through. The helmet flared out to form a shape that Kathleen May would later describe as a shape like the spades that you'd find in a deck of cards. Almost every one of the witnesses said that the object had no arms. One of the boys remembered that where the shoulders were, there were small metal rods like TV antennas protruding horizontally out, a few inches out from either side. Not arms, not hands. Not much description was given to the chest area, except that the overall color was dark, maybe black, 
but below that there was a green glow emanating from within the frame. It was a solid ten-foot-high frame. At the area where you would expect legs was what might have resembled a pleated metal skirt that surrounded the lower half of the tall figure. It resembled exhaust pipes welded together vertically surrounding the lower half of the frame, but not touching the ground. The object was hovering about a foot and a half above the ground. As the little group stared at the object in frozen terror for those few seconds, the figure, again, emitted a hissing sound, emitting a foul, oily gas as it did so, which covered those in the group who were standing the closest. And then it made a movement toward them, a gliding movement, as the frame tilted and began to move toward them. Gene dropped his flashlight, screamed involuntarily, then bent down low to the ground to pick it up, and the group as one bolted back down the path that had led them up the hillside, falling, flailing in terror, jumping and climbing over the wooden fence that blocked the path and marked the entrance to the property. The last thing Kathleen May noted before she ran was that the whole thing had no feet. Again, no legs, no feet. She thought it was hovering about a foot and a half off the ground. The oily mess had covered the two young May boys, as well as Kathleen May's uniform, for she had just returned from work at a local beautician. Kathleen May, who had originally struggled to climb over the wooden fence, now leaped over it in one move. One of the other boys ran for a mile to his home and turned on the radio until the house shook and hysterically related his experience to his mother. Gene Lemon, who had gotten very close to that noxious ground mist when he had bent over to pick up his flashlight, was so seriously ill during the night that he was in convulsions and had attacks of vomiting. The collie dog that had accompanied the group died within 24 hours. Gene Lemon's doctor said he'd never seen anything like it before, but could only compare the effects to those of mustard gas. The May boys were cared for by their grandmother, who wiped the oily substance from their faces while their mother phoned for the sheriff and the owner of the Sutton newspaper, which covered the Flatwoods area and surrounding. Soon the throats of the boys were so swollen that they could not even drink water. After two weeks, Gene Lemon still was not able to swallow carbonated drinks without pains in his throat. When the sheriff arrived, he listened to Mrs. May's story, but did not venture to investigate any further during the night, during which neighborhood dogs howled all night. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. The fog now covered the entire hillside, not unusual for hill country, but for a number of frightened families living no more than a quarter of a mile from the place where the apparent monster had appeared. Daylight couldn't come soon enough. At this point, we'll add portions of the Ivan Sanderson 1953 report to help set the stage for the rest of the story. Now 16 years in just about every country in the world. And when this happened, Ivan Sanderson, the world-renowned naturalist, world traveler, author, was asked by True Magazine and the North American Newspaper Alliance to come to West Virginia to get the facts about the Braxton County monster for True Magazine and for a series in North American Newspaper Alliances. So in 1953, I got in touch with uh, Long John Neville, a close friend of ours for many, many years in New York City, and told him at that time to get a tape for me interviewing Ivan Sanderson about his investigation of the Brexton County Monster. And this also was investigated by Gray Barker, who is from Clarksburg, West Virginia, the author of They Knew Too Much About uh, 
flying saucers, and many other stories about flying saucers. So we start the program going back to the year that this happened, 16 years ago, the appearance of the Braxton County Monster, as told by Ivan Sanderson. Well, um, I'd like to try and put it in a nutshell as follows, as I said before. First of all, uh, I went down there about five or six days after the occurrence took place at the request of the North American Newspaper Alliance, uh, for whom I do some reporting work and special uh, representation, and also on behalf of True Magazine. It was Ken Purdy of True Magazine who, when running out of his office one day on some private business, uh, picked at random out of a mass of clippings that used to come to his desk every, every day a, a perfectly ridiculous statement that a 12-foot uh, green monster with red glowing eyes had been seen on a mountaintop at Fatwood uh, in, uh, um, I think it's Saxton County, isn't it? Uh, West Virginia. I didn't know I was going to be asked to tell you about this tonight, so if my names are wrong, forgive me. And he gave this report, Ken Purdy, to John Dubarry of True Magazine, who was their aviation editor and was interested in flying saucers and such, and said, get a hold of Ivan Sanderson and have him get down there and see what this is all about. Ken Purdy had an absolute genius of picking a news story. So I was rung up and asked to go down. So my assistant, uh, Eddie Schoenenberger, and I, we jumped in an old taxi cab we had at the time, and we, we took off. I may say that on the way down, we went through the worst rainstorm that I have witnessed anywhere in the world. And I've lived in Assam, and I've lived in on, right on Cape de Buncher in West Africa, which are the two points of highest rainfall in the world. But I have never seen rain like we had on the, um, on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Well, we rolled into Flatwoods the next morning. That's Flatwoods, West Virginia? Yeah, West Virginia. It's in the mountains. It is north of Charleston. Uh, West Virginia. How do the uh, roads there compare with those in Europe? Uh, what, in the hills? Mm. Oh, excellent. They have uh, very good motor roads going through. Of course, there are an enormous number of little, um, um, what you call it, roads, uh, dirt roads going up into the hills because there's been extensive mining throughout that entire area. If you fly over it, you will see uh, mine heads and mine shafts everywhere, and the tops of these, of these wooded hills are completely covered with these dirt roads. Well, make a long story short, this is what we found out during our investigations. There were a number of, there were 14, all told, a uh, number of young, uh, young people, uh, kids and uh, up to the age of 14, were playing football on a small um, field in the bottom of a little valley in the village of Flatwood. The village of Flatwood is at one end of this little valley. It's ringed around by mountains as uh, you down there will probably know better than I do, uh, or our other listeners up here. Now, through this valley runs a road, a blacktop road, going from north to south, also a railway line, a railway track. And at the opposite end of this little valley to the village is a small um, railroad station. And there is a dirt road that crosses the rail tracks uh, leading off the, off the blacktop, just by that rail station, then curves up round the back of one of these mountains, and uh, sort of peters out uh, at a field. And up that road, stuck on the side of this hill, I would say, a very stony hill, are a number of uh, dwellings. Up on the top, at the back of the mountain, there are four or five rather larger houses. One of those houses is occupied by a family by the name of May. Uh, the lady, Mrs. May, if I remember right, is principally concerned in this affair. These kids were playing uh, just before sundown, uh, down on this field at the bottom of the village. And one of the kids looked up, and one of the little ones, 
I differentiate between kids and young people. Uh, say kids, the five, six, seven-year-olds, and the young people above that, you see. One of the kids looked up and he said, uh, in so many words, what on earth is that? And they all looked around, and round, round the edge of a hill, uh, behind the village, the north of the village, uh, but lower than the peak of that hill, or the one opposite, it came a, a pear-shaped glowing red object which was pulsing from cherry red to bright orange, according to all the witnesses. It was traveling blunt end first. It traveled quite slowly across the valley over their heads and just managed to top the mountain on the other side or the hill on the other side of the valley, which is that hill behind which there are these dwellings of which I spoke a moment ago. Well, the kids all said, um, as I say, gee, what was that? And one of the elder boys, whose name was Nun, a very, very intelligent boy of 14 years old, had uh, remembered that at school they had been asked if they saw a meteor or anything like that and saw anything fall from the sky that, that the geological survey would be interested in getting uh, the remains of it or anything that was found on the ground. And he said, come on, that may be a bolide or something and something looks as if it's landed behind that hill because I must point out, yes, I'm sorry, that the kids all state categorically that this object, this large glowing object, which appeared to be about the size of a house, seemed to pause when it topped the hill and then to sink, instead of going on down in the sort of trajectory, it stopped and sank slowly down behind the hill. And they could see this light pulsing behind the crest of the hill. And none said, the 14-year-old said, come on, let's run up there. Uh, something may have landed and we may be able to get something for the geological survey, which I think is pretty bright and intelligent. So the kids ran up the blacktop, taking a few minutes, turned left on the dirt road, crossed the railway track, went up around behind the hill, and as they run between the, ran between the houses, several of the people would come out on the verandas and they said, what's going on? And one of the younger kids said, um, a flying saucer has landed, uh, picking up, I mean, he, 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 one of the, the little ones, you see. Mrs. May and a young man aged 18, who had just joined the National Guard, I think, or the services or something, was uh, visiting with her. Some other people came out and they grabbed a big flashlight because it was just getting dark, and they saw this huge thing lying in the field, about two fields away, up by the crest. So they all gathered together. Uh, there were, in the end, I'm sorry, I was wrong in saying there were 14 kids playing. The total party in the end was 14. So there must have been, there was uh, May, Mrs. May and the young man, and then there were 11 kids, and then there was a little one, a little five-year-old, also named Nun, if I remember right, who was at one of the houses, and he tagged along behind. And to me, he is one of the most important witnesses in the whole case because of his extraordinary honesty. When we asked him certain things, he said, but mister, I couldn't see, I'm too, too low down. There was grass <laughs> in between me. I mean, uh, these kids are the most straightforward, honest witnesses I've ever known. However, they all started out, and they ran up the ridge where there's a path. Pardon they, me, didn't the little boy have his dog with him? Well, a dog, a collie dog, belonging to another house, not Mrs. May. Uh, nor, nor the 18-year-old, but there was a collie-like dog that was there. Yeah, thank you, John, for reminding me of that. It's a very important thing in the case. It started off with them. Well, they came to a gate which was, which was chained, uh, and they unchained it, but being good country folk, when they'd gone through the gate, they rechained the gate. It's rather you know the height point. of that fence? That, that, uh, that gate was, a, I think, a five-bar, but it was up almost by my neck, and I'm exactly six foot tall. It was a uh, high gate. You were actually down there after this event took place. I, we arrived there. investigated it. Every point of it. With Gray Barker. 
Grey Barker arrived while we were there, but we had some other friends, some scientists up from Monsanto Chemical, one of whom was a great uh, photographer, Walter, and I photographed every single thing of this. We mapped it and surveyed it. We searched the ground almost inch by inch, and uh, as the as these uh, facts fall into place, I'll, I'll tell you all of them. But this gate is important. It was a high gate, and they rechanged it, and they went on up this path, by which time it was very nearly dark, and they turned the flash on. The dog by this time had run ahead. Now, what they, what they saw up there, they were within, I mean, they were within paces of this thing. And I think enormous fortitude was shown by those people in walking up to a completely unknown object, which they pointed out to me a house, an outhouse, sort of little barn. And I said, how big was it? And they said, about that size. We measured that little two-story barn, but a small one, it was 22 foot high. They said this thing had landed with the nose, the blunt end down, so it formed not exactly a pair, but it was more like a... Um, ace of spades, sort of standing up in the field, mm -hmm. sticking up. And they walked up to within certainly 50 paces of it, according to their description. At which time it was standing upright and making no noise, but was, was pulsing with very bright light from cherry red to very pale orange. Uh, I'll jump ahead of my story for a minute and say it wasn't until way at the end when we had questioned all these people, or at least all the kids, together in various combinations of two, three, four, and five, and singly, and then mixed them up again, and we, for three days we went on, and they never deviated from their stories one single iota. And if you can tell me that a bunch of 12 kids can get together and make up a lie and stick to it for 10 days under the most grueling uh, circumstances because there were professional reporters there... Did you interrogate them individually? Individually. In, in combinations of different twos and threes and fours and all together and over three days and there was never in the evidence we have it taped and we have it written down there was never a mistake some added a few touches which were not exaggerations some of them uh, became a little doubtful as to whether it was just as they said the first time or the second but they never deviated in their overall story and I think that's very very a powerful factor uh, in evaluating the whole thing and it wasn't until right the end but one of the younger kids, I don't remember which one now, I said to him, well, weren't you frightened of being burnt with this thing? He said, but, mister, it wasn't hot. We naturally, everybody had supposed, because of this tremendous light, that the thing was hot and was pulsing. Oh, no, no, no. He said, it's like, um, like a neon sign. He said, it's not hot. It wasn't hot. And they had kept on saying that it was black. And I said, but if it was pulsing cherry red to orange, how do you say it's black? And they said, well, it was obviously a black object which was giving out this light. All right, well... They go along, they lit the flash. The dog had run ahead, and all around this object there was a thick mist, looked like a ground mist, a patch of it, lying on the side of the hill. Now, you do get these patches of mist uh, at sundown, sometimes in little coals <laughs> up on the hill, and they had assumed that it was that. Well, they stratify, Ivan. They, they very seldom lie along the side of the hill, not as much as they would on a definite strata. Uh, no, uh, oh, no, 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 excuse no? me. In, in that climate, uh, especially after those tremendously heavy rains, I have seen these little sort of scooped-out coals on the side of a hill actually filled with mist, and it's sort of spilling over the edge, almost like it was treacle. Well, I, actually, it holds there like water would with a definite top level, doesn't it? No, it's stick on the side in some cases. Is that you right? get a patch right over an area where the soil may be particularly moist, and just for a few minutes while it's coming out at sundown, you get a, just a, like a round blob on the side, and they're used to that, and they thought that's what it was. But the dog ran into this mist, going barking at this object, according to their story. He immediately set up a howl, and took off practically with the speed of the light, down 
to the village and was subsequently found having vomited all over a veranda and di subsequently died. Um, now, in other words, evidence of poison. Yeah, leave that aside for the moment. In other words, it was a gas. They said there was a ghastly smell, and this is what was in the report. A ghastly smell of hot molten metal. And they got the smell, although only one of them bent down and got his head in the gas. And that was this... One of the youngsters? No, the 18-year-old. The 18-year-old boy. Yes, I have mm -hmm. to skip ahead of my story because this is what happened. They had this, lit this flash. They were looking at the object, and then suddenly one of the kids behind said, Look, up in the tree. Now, there was one <coughs> oak tree growing isolated right on the top of the ridge. And there's a little pathway at the bottom. This oak tree was on a bank, a three-foot bank on the left of the pathway. The big object was a little bit further down the hill to the right, if you follow me. This is to the left. The first uh, branch going out of the oak tree, which was a clear branch, when measured from the underneath of the branch to the, to the path on which they were standing, was 12 foot 6 inches about. Now, they pointed, this kid pointed up to this branch, and underneath the branch, uh, apparently suspended in the air, was a creature or a thing or an object about the size of a very heavy set man, but obviously contained in some kind of suit or what looks from their drawings, their composite drawing, they all did sketches, and we put a composite of it, which looks exactly like one of the most modern naval diving uh, suits, which is solid. The person is inside, it has a pair of artificial arms in front that you can crank. The head goes into a headpiece, which has a, a glass plate in the front, a uh, silicon glass plate, and it's got uh, lights in it so that you can see in the dark. And the whole thing is, is uh, suspended in water, mostly by gas tanks, so that there's no great weight on the wire. So the wire that lets it down is nothing much more than an anchor and has the telephone cable and so on going. Now, this thing looked for all the world like that in the drawings. Um, at first, they thought it was a 12-foot giant thing standing there because the bottom half of it, if it had any, was lost behind a lot of little uh, of tall grass and uh, briars and well, stuff. this mist, too, covered it. No, it? the mist was down to the right by the big object. Down to the right. This was perfectly mm -hmm. clear up to the left on this little bank. And there was first the bank and then all this, this vegetation, this herbage growing on it. And this thing was sticking out at the top of the herbage, but underneath the first limb of the tree. You follow me? Mm -hmm. uh, they thought it was a coon at first because they saw what they thought were two eyes. They described them as being pale blue, uh, held close together and like very dim flashlight beams were coming out of the plate glass window on the front of the head of this whatever it was. They were fixed beams, but the thing was turning slowly around, waving from left to right and right to left, as if it was searching the horizon with these beams. I may interject here that that particular point is the highest in the whole area, and standing where that object was, you can see 14 light beacons scattered over the mountains, away over West Virginia and down into Virginia and right back up the other side. Um, in other words, it, it, somebody suggested that this thing was looking for its colleagues or was looking to find out where it was. But apparently when the flashlight came on, the object tilted over so that these two little beams came down and concentrated on them and then immediately began to, began to silently drift through the air, sort of um, in a half circle, towards them and around to the left to go down from its left to go down towards the big pulsing object, the red thing that was lying in the field. So scared were they when this tremendous thing came towards them, which was of a sort of aluminum gray color, but reflecting uh, the color of the bushes and such, which gave the idea of greenness, because little men, green men always, and that's probably the newspaper edition. They were so scared, the guy dropped the flash, and he bent over to pick it up, and in doing so, he got his head into this 
into this ground mist. Well, uh, jump ahead again, he became so violently ill as a result, they called a doctor half an hour later down to the house and didn't use a stomach pump, but everything short of it. And also it seemed to have had an extraordinary psychological effect on him because he was a, a fine upstanding young man. But he absolutely and positively refused even the next day to go back up that hill. It seemed, and he was in a frightful state that night. The doctor was really worried about him. He was completely knocked out. However, but of course they all took off. And I don't blame them when this thing started to sail through the air towards them. How about the gate? Well, I know, John, you like the gate part. <laughs> I got this from the littlest one of all. A little, I think his name was Johnny Nunn. Uh, I was asking them at various points, well, what happened when you came to the gate? And, um, no, not that kind of gate at all. This was a five-barred gate, and, a, and there was the space between the hunks of wood was certainly not more than a, a foot. About 12 inches. 12 inches. Mm -hmm. I said, well, well, what happened when you came to the gate? And he said, well, I don't know, don't rightly know, mister. He said, I didn't try the gate. He said, I went under the hedge because I'm small. But he said, I know that Mrs. May took it in one. She went clean over the top. <laughs> and he said, some of them, I think, went through the gate, mister. Most of them couldn't tell at that point what they had done. But anyhow, they cleared the gate in one. The Olympics missed some good candidates. They sure did. <laughs> well, it would be impossible to take the time to open up the gate again. Well, they weren't taking time, brother. Not, not then. They were making time. They weren't taking it. And they were right back down to the house. Well... Uh, to finish off this part of the story, we only found, much later on, after a considerable amount of questioning all over the district, we found a farmer who lived on a mountain, no, on a mountain, on a, on a hill, about three miles away to the southeast, who was the only person who had had a pair of binoculars on this object. He thought that the house was on fire, uh, but it began to look funny, and he couldn't see very well. It was about three mountain peaks or three hill peaks away. So he went inside, he got out an old pair of binoculars, which he showed me. They were uh, pre-World War I. And he is the only person we know who's able to state or make any statement as to what happened to that great big object. What happened to the little one, I don't know. It looked, looked to everybody as if it was trying to get back into the big one. Uh, but he watched the big object, and he, he said that for a matter of 10 to 15 minutes, it continued to pulse. And it... Uh, it pulsed the same colors, but getting redder and redder and weaker and weaker amount of light. And he felt very sure that the whole object itself was diminishing in size. And he said it finally disappeared about 20 minutes later in a pinpoint of light, and then it was complete darkness. Now, when the, the gang who had been up to it got back down to the houses, uh, they, uh, a lot of people began to gather. There was great rumpus, and they sent for a doctor, and they tried to... There was a telephone at one of the houses, and they telephoned for the local police to come. But the local police were already out investigating something else, as I shall just end off with in a moment. Uh, they called a lot of the men together, and they got shotguns, and they formed a posse, and they went up to investigate. At least they said they did. They were back in extremely short order, stating categorically that they could find nothing. But they did not get going for at least half an hour after the incident. Uh, by which time, according to this farmer, this thing had winked out. It did not go away. It had just disappeared in situ. Therefore, they may have been perfectly honest in saying that they had not seen anything. And I think they may have been honest in saying that they went up there because they did report this perfectly ghastly, nauseating smell of molten metal. It's peculiar. Now, where was the road patrol? This is what we found out when we got there. That's that side of the story. We then started asking around all over the district the tape recorder and such, did you see the thing? And they all said, oh, that there flying saucer, ha, ha, ha. No, but we saw the meteor. 
Well, then we started mapping. We had a big aerial map of the whole area, and we started mapping where they, at what time they said they saw said meteor. And then we came up with one very interesting discovery. There had not been one object, there had been six. Uh, six different objects? Six identical. Identical. But, but different objects. One, two, three, four, five, six. Mm -hmm. They were all traveling, let us say, to make it perfectly simple, from about north to south. The one on the east side was spotted all along a line by about 30, 40 people. It passed right over the Sutton airport and was then reported during that night all the way down to Alabama in a perfectly straight line, according to what newspaper and other reports we could get. That was just one of them? That was the most easternmost of them. They were traveling along a straight front, almost exactly five of our miles apart. The only time they had appeared to have deviated from that from the reports is when they went around a hill or a mountain. But they were keeping on a steady course from north to south, traveling not too fast. I should imagine by, we asked the kids, put your finger in the air and pass it from left to right. Show us how fast, it, uh, how long it took to get across Flatwoods. And it took... Uh, well, that would be about jet speed, as you demonstrated here. Uh, oh, no, sir. Jets would go <laughs> gone like that. Depends Don't on their altitude. Yeah, this thing was not more than 200 foot up from where they were standing. And it took, I would say, radio time uh, um, 25 seconds to pass from the hill, uh, 45 degree angle from there to there. No, but the way they've showed it, it was good. they were going pretty slowly. There was a steady speed. Right, eastern one, number one, went straight on down, got away. Number two was this flatwood one that landed. I call that a landing. Number three came around a hill, went over a, a road, and crashed into the side of a mountain. That was Gray Barker and I, and Eddie went up and investigated that. And that's where we found this peculiar stuff. Was the ground seared at that point? Well, um, if I may leave that for a moment, I'll come to it. Number three crashed on, on, a, on another mountain top on the land of two remarkable young men who have farmed their farm all their lives, although they are both cripples. Uh, they do it all by tractor. But they cannot farm the knolls on their upland because it's full of rocks and so on, they can't get in, so they farm. So they, they couldn't persuade anybody to go and investigate this knoll where they had seen this, this one land for their eyes. The, that's number four. Number five blew up in the sky right in front of four members, six members of our National Caving Society, Cave Exploration Society, um, at the house of which people called the McLeans. They were sitting on the veranda after having been out on a caving expedition, and they saw this thing come around the mountains, were amazed, and it blew up right over some fields. And uh, Mrs. Williams, one of the members uh, who were there, told me afterwards with complete innocence that a lot of kind of ashes shot out of it and scattered all over the land. I said, you mean you're supposed to be a geologist and you didn't even go to pick up some? <laughs> <laughs> and number six, number six missed and went right on and was seen all the way down in a parallel line uh, to Alabama almost as well. So uh, one went on, two landed, three crashed into this mountain top, uh, four crashed into a mountain top, five blew up in the air, and six got away. There's some very good reason for that. Now, Sounds like a series of unguided missiles, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> but except for this one, the landing one, if it was a missile, if it had missed that mountain top, which it did, it would have sailed right on over the next valley and hit the next hill on the side. Mm. But it didn't. It had stopped and landed. And I know that it landed because where it landed, it had pushed a... It had pushed a, um, a circular depression into the ground, but exactly vertical to the center of the earth. Do you see what I mean? I Not a, a slosh mm -hmm. downwards 
In other words, it wasn't a glancing blow. It was a direct rest. It had come down, and it would have been weight, and a lot of weight, because the grass there was an overgrown field, and it was knee-high, I mean, waist-high, and full of little twigs and bushes. All that was completely flattened. The ground itself was flattened, and there were some considerable stones, not boulders, but stones, the size of a man's head lying in there, and they'd been pushed right down into the ground. Well, this thing had considerable mass and weight, then. Definitely. And also, at, um, at the three points, equidistant around it, there were three holes jammed into the ground at the edge of the circle, which looked exactly as if a cart horse with a foot, <coughs> uh, with, a, with a hoof about two foot across, had been jammed down into the ground, as if a tri it had stood on a tripod, that's what it looked like. Exactly similar marks we found up uh, where number three crashed. Um, there were five of us, Eddie Schoenenberger, Gray Barker, uh, Raymond Walters and one other gentleman from Monsanto and myself. We had reports of this, of very reliable, I will not have time to go into. We searched this mountain, uh, mountainside on our hands and knees, clawing our way up because it was so steep. We found nothing until we got to the top. And over the top, there was a little swamp up there uh, with small trees behind the big forest, tall trees. And in there, I found a huge, like a skid mark, which had knocked these bushes down. And there, were, there was a depression in that and also two of these tremendous hoof-like things pushed into the ground. <coughs> uh, and beyond it, a whole mass of little pieces, little coils of white plastic-like material scattered all over the ground. I'll tell you about that. I've been go going back to the depression. How large was that depression? Well, the depression itself was about uh, 15 foot across, we measured it, 15 or 16 foot. But you couldn't, of course, tell exactly where it ran out to the side because it was a... a, a a dish-shaped depression, a saucer-shaped depression. The reason I asked, are you are you familiar with the experimental work that uh, Mr. Monsieur Kawanda is now doing in Canada? What, on on, on the discs? Yes. Um, well, I've read something about it, but I don't know anything about... Uh, would it have any connection with such things? Well, I'm just wondering if it, it could have been experimental. Well, he's he's well, been working at it for some time. Yes, that's true. But wait, before we get on to that, let me just conclude our report from down there, and then I'd like to just take that up, because there's a nasty one. Um, and then that. Uh, I don't think those machines are made to dissolve, are they? Not I'm quite. Sure, no. <laughs> to the contrary. <laughs> Nor also do they um, give out with some kind of plastic or something. No, they give out uh, with flame. With flame, too, yeah. Well, this was definitely coal, if these reports would be believed. In each case, incidentally. Because uh, number three here, he thought, uh, the fellow who saw it, he thought that this was a flaming aeroplane came around the, came around the corner of the hill. This one we, we investigated. Well, anyhow, uh, to conclude this part, uh, Eddie Schoenenberger happened to be looked back up at the trees from the direction in which number three had come before it had apparently crashed in the swamp. And he, he said, look at that. And there was a whole treetop knocked off and several other branches, all recently shattered. You always make a hole through the top of the tree. Was there any odor around there? No, because we were five, six days off. This was about a week after the other one had occurred. Well, wasn't there, uh, I think I heard that there was the local editor of the newspaper or one of the members of the police department oh, he went over and got down on the ground on all fours and he noticed that there was still some stench remaining there? As a matter of fact, the first of all, the party the people reported it at Flatwoods. Then the posse went up, and they were so nauseated they wanted to get out of there as quick as possible, and they said it was absolutely overpowering. In the meantime, the, uh, the road patrol was unable to come because they were investigating number
for three, but the local police arrived from um, uh, Braxton County, it's not Braxton County, I'm sorry, from, from the town of Sutton. They got down on their hands and knees, they didn't have to, they noticed the smell, and the uh, very charming gentleman I met down there, the, um, uh, the owner of the uh, Republican paper, there's two, it's a Republican and a Democratic paper. The uh, head of the Democratic paper was deeply interested in this, and he brought Mrs. May and uh, the young fellow, whose name I can't remember, up to New York for a, for a show, I think, with Ed Sullivan or something here on this. Um, and they were gone while we were down there. But this other gentleman had personally been up there that night, because he's very, very much alive to, to local affairs and happenings, and he was up there right smart during the night, and he smelt it too. But the next morning, there was a lot of confusion. There's always red herrings drawn across these things. A lot of people started turning up, and they said that the grass there was covered with oil. Well, it wasn't. Um, the all the grass there is covered with a kind of oil. It's coiled oil grass or tar grass. You can pass your hand over a whip of it when it's growing and pull it up and your hand will be sticky afterwards and has a rather lovely aromatic smell. That, I, I am assured by all the local people, they had nothing whatsoever to do with this perfectly ghastly stench which had occurred from this, from this uh, plane, uh, this uh, thing or whatever it was that landed. Well, just to, to, um, to round up this whole thing, Walter, and for the benefit of our friends down there who want to hear this report on tape, uh, there are certain aspects of the whole um, uh, phenomena which are of great interest, and that is this, that at that particular time, which was September, I think 1953, or 52, I can't remember, uh, there had been some enormous forest fires in Texas, uh, Louisiana, Alabama, and we were receiving in New York here even a very high smoke count in the air. In fact, we had a haze, you recall it, mm -hmm. and we had white ash land. Point number one. Point number two on this particular score, which all of which was pointed out to me by the chemist down there, uh, that block of hills over which these objects came looked down into a series of valleys running parallel. And those valleys are filled with coal mines which are belching smoke all the time. Monsanto chemical plant and other enormous chemical plants and other installations for which that part of the, of the country is famous. Belching smoke and carbonaceous gases of all kinds. The wind happened to be blowing straight up these valleys, up this mountain. There was the smoke from the forest fires, there was all this accumulation. And there was a barrier of carbonaceously filled air <coughs> rising at the heads of these valleys. But object number one and object number six were to the left and right of that area. And they seemed to have got away. And as it was pointed out to me that all the others, it looked as if as soon as they hit an, a highly polluted atmosphere, uh, Something went wrong with either if they were animals, they're breathing, if they were machines with their air intake or something. In other words, that if they are extraterrestrial creatures of one kind or another, they were apparently doing a swoop down into our atmosphere to take a look, see, and then go in formation and go on up again. And what actually happened was they hit some of the wrong kind of air and something went wrong with them. They went out of control. The backwards one was able to land and have a look around, see what had happened to his colleagues or where he was. Numbers two and three um, hit hills fell out of control, and number, and number five, number three and four, and number five blew up in the air. Come um, to the end of what I had to say, really. There's an enormous amount more to it, which I could go on almost indefinitely, but I think that's enough detail for, for anybody to be asked to absorb at one go. Uh, I, my personal opinion I'd just like to throw in is that, that those, um, none of those people were telling lies, uh, those from Flatwoods especially that the 400 odd other people whom we interviewed, including the young man who reported to the police um, number three incident, the crash, and those young farmers, were certainly not, not lying. They were a highly skeptical group. They did not believe in flying saucers if they'd heard of them. 
Uh, but they did say that there were these objects in the sky, they had their times down pat. I mean, we'd say, well, what time was it? And they'd say, well, let me see now. Dawn comes and so on, and I used to put my porch light on and so on, so that would make it. And they'd pin it down within the minute. And they all jived all over. And uh, their descriptions gave exactly the course of these things on an aerial map. And I don't think those people were lying. I do think there were those six objects there. But what they were, of course, I have the foggiest notion. The last payoff was John Lee that we did have this funny white stuff analyzed. My friends took it down to the, the, one of the labs in Monsanto, and they couldn't be much better there. They had this numerous uh, specters, spectrographic analysis machinery. They were unable to find out what it was. It seemed to be a, uh, of a plastic nature, but to be of an organic structure. The only thing they could think was that it looked more like a, the dried up skin of a snake's egg than anything else. However, one of the lab assistants down there managed to soften it up They've been trying to soften it up in any, everything. He said, why don't you try water? Which they did. <laughs> and one of, these little, one of these little rolls of stuff, which were only about the size of my little finger, when stretched out, measured nine and a half inches. And I would like to know what snake's egg found in the United States or anywhere else uh, from which you could get a strip nine and a half inches long. Uh, the parting shot was a humorous one made by John DeBarry. When I told him about all this, he said, uh-oh. Perhaps they were space people, but perhaps they're reptiles and were looking for somewhere to lay an egg. Back to our story. A. Lee Stewart, the owner of the Braxton County Democrat, wanted to go back up the mountain that night. They all said no, but he started making calls, literally rounding up a posse with searchlights. He rounded up Gene Lemon again, who did not want to go back up there, but Stewart prodded and pushed him ahead of him now with a group of men armed with shotguns and pistols. At the clearing, under a searchlight, he found some skid marks indicating that something heavy had moved very recently across the meadow, and he picked up a strange gel he saw lying on the ground near the marks. Finding nothing else, they left. The next day, the headline in the Charleston Daily Mail read, Braxton County residents faint, become ill after running with ten-foot monster. The article went on to say that the men could still smell the odor on the ground when they got there. No cars or wagons had been in this part for many years, and the weeds were several feet high, with the exception of one large circular area where the weeds had been pressed down. That grass was freshly depressed, and closer search disclosed a piece of black plastic material which did not burn when tested by Stewart. Not finding anything else, and seeing no strange craft or ten-foot-tall monster, that search party left the hilltop. A few hours later, the West Virginia National Guard was contacted by the Air Force and asked to put together a search party to search for survivors of a reported plane crash near Frametown, just 10 miles away, but not at the same hill where the May Group had had their frightening experience. There were apparently some very strange things going on in the sky in West Virginia that night. Six strange things, according to author-investigator Ivan Sanderson, who showed up in town six days after the event and spent days interviewing not only the close encounter witnesses, but practically every home and farm home within 20 miles, spreading the word that if you saw anything that night, to let him know and how to reach him. You just heard his interview, so you know exactly where he stands on the event and what he's contributed to it to this point. The same search party, having come up empty at the Frametown site, was ordered next to go to the Bailey Fisher farm and ended up setting up a full search of the Braxton Monster site, camping in the clearing area that night with about 60 men and using searchlights to collect any physical data. They came in through the back end of that farm so as not to alert the townspeople to their presence. They collected bits of vegetation, 
metal scrapings, and took ground samples. Their final explanation, in keeping with directives from the Air Force, was that the May Group had seen a meteorite. Go home, everybody. Nothing to see here. The captain who led that group, and who had been called by the Air Force to quickly put together that search, years later handed an unsigned note to researcher Frank Faschino apologizing to the witnesses and townspeople for the Air Force cover-up, admitting, one, that the Air Force covered up, and admitting that he and the search party were under strict orders to say nothing about what they had found. The risk was in being fined for blabbing while in temporary service of the U.S. government on what was considered a classified project. A Project Blue Book investigator named Smith arrived on the scene the following day and began questioning people as to what, as to what they had seen and heard. Further inquiries at Gene Lemon's farmhouse revealed that Mrs. Lemon and a friend were having coffee at the time of the landing, and their house shook so violently that coffee spilled over the table, and they thought the house had fallen off its foundation. They lived in a small farmhouse not far from the site, about a quarter mile, in other words, 1,500 feet, or roughly five football fields down the side of the hill and around. Their radio went off for 45 minutes and came back on by itself. One thing I found to be strangely interesting, in his systematic questioning of everyone in the valley, Project Blue Book investigator Smith found that a girl, 21, from the town of Weston, 11 miles from the Lemon Farm, had been confined in the Clarksburg Hospital for the previous three weeks, after having seen a figure of the same description, and emitting the same odor reported by witnesses of the Sutton occurrence. Her mother confirmed the girl's story that they had seen a, quote, monster when they were on their way to church more than a week before Mrs. May's experience. A couple weeks before the May group experience. This would place the ten-foot-tall, whatever it was, already in the area before the crash. But who's going to believe the girl without a UFO crash to lend at least some credibility to her sighting? So let's assume for a moment, just for a moment, that she was right. In this case, you can't help but feel sorry for her. Confined in a hospital for weeks, all because she said she saw something. What was the robotic being doing near Weston, if indeed she had seen what she thought she saw? Checking soil? Investigating mines? Looking for a power source for their fleet? Collecting animals for research? Collecting people? One of you enterprising listener researchers might try researching missing persons in West Virginia in 1952. You never know what you might come up with. There may also have been other sightings of this thing. It does make you wonder. UFO investigators Gray Barker, who actually grew up in Braxton County, and naturalist Ivan T. Sanderson both went to Flatwoods to research the events of September 12th, with Sanderson arriving as early as September 18th. As we heard in the interview, they explored the site, interviewed witnesses, and wrote reports of their findings that were later published. Sanderson did a number of radio interviews, and the one that you just heard is in the public domain, and available to everyone. We left a link in the show notes for you. Both the researchers concluded that the group had encountered an extraterrestrial craft and its occupant. In the case of Sanderson's 36-page report, he states that, and you heard it, at least six objects came over traveling in a straight line from north to south. Several of the crafts crashed and were never recovered but one craft landed outside Flatwoods and its occupant was able to exit the ship while wearing a protective suit before the craft disintegrated. More skeptical thinking from the time includes several possible alternative explanations. A schoolteacher suggested 
that a combination of the light from a nearby plane beacon and the fiery trail of the blazing meteor reflected in some manner to take the shape of a glowing monster. Another, supposedly put forth by a noted scientist, said that if the meteor broke up over Flatwoods, a piece could have fallen to the ground, disintegrated into vapor that might rise up in the form of a monster. Still others suggested that the apparition was a religious sign sent by God. Interestingly enough, if you deep-research the Project Blue Book files, there is a suggestion regarding the Braxton County monster incident that the editor of the Braxton Democrat had created the whole thing as a hoax so he could sell newspapers. Finally, a cheese company in Wisconsin wondered if everything could have been caused by an inflated rubber cow which had been launched about 10 days before as a publicity stunt. Sanderson, of course, rejected all of these explanations and provided us with a steady stream of circumstantial evidence based upon interviews and research. And before you sneer at circumstantial evidence, as all skeptics do, ask a judge or prosecuting attorney just how many criminals are locked up, and 99.5% rightly so, due to a preponderance of very reliable circumstantial evidence. And speaking of skeptics, Joe Nichols, the famous UFO and paranormal debunker, who never believed a story he couldn't see and touch, came to Flatwoods, talked to a few people, did not walk up to the site of the encounter, and determined that what the May group had seen was a meteor, the distant flashing red lights of mountaintop antennas, and a barn owl. The rest was created by group hysteria, so said Nichols. The U.S. Air Force also went with the meteor and barn owl story. A local TV station got the monster description totally wrong and produced a piece of artwork that looks like a little green witch wearing a skirt and having arms with claws for hands and big round eyes. That's the image that the town uses for tourists and that many of the articles about the monster use. It's totally off base according to the sketches and testimony of the witnesses who saw it. And speaking of images, you should be very interested in this as it relates to the description of the monster of Braxton County. I researched Google specifically for aliens plus ancient cave paintings because something had been nagging at my memory. And I found cave drawings estimated to have been done 5,000 years ago on the walls of the Sego Canyon Cave in Utah, that's S-E-G-O, by an ancient tribe called the Anasazi. The drawings on the pictures I looked at showed five helmeted man-type figures, the one on the left showing two oversized, very round eyes set within a spade-shaped helmet. None of the figures show arms or legs or feet. The drawings show snake-like lightning-style bolts near the figures, which possibly indicate that the figures were emitting some sort of power source or possibly that they just considered them godlike. Again, those figures have no legs, just body shapes that look solid, rising to wide shoulders beneath the helmet. Again, no arms. These were beings that our experts tell us were worshipped like gods. Similar drawings, according to the article I found, which is listed in the show notes, have been discovered at ancient sites throughout the world. We'll leave that Sego cave painting link in the show notes for you. Your guess is as good as mine, but here's mine. 
Add these spade helmeted legless and armless creatures with the big eyes to the list of types of alien civilizations, such as the greys, such as the lizard people. This circulation having existed at least 5,000 years, and who knows how much longer. And remember, that's our measurement of time on Earth. It doesn't apply anywhere else. These guys or the life forms that created these robots, for lack of a better word, must know Earth pretty well. They have probably mined some valuable resources here. They may also have brought life here, or taken it away to plant life on other planets. I have no problems believing in the possibility of any of this. This is just one incident that took place in 1952. Actually, there were 1,501 UFO sightings reported in detail to Project Blue Book that year, making 1952 the most active year ever on record, ever, for UFO sightings in America. We'll discuss the Air Force's role with Project Blue Book, including the book titled The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, written in 1956 by Project Blue Book's own Captain Edward J. Ruppelt, who blew open the Air Force's No UFOs Are Proven to Exist position with his written testimony that said very plainly that UFOs created by a much higher technology existed and that the Air Force was covering it up. You'll hear part one of 1001 Heroes' recent interview with nuclear physicist-turned-ufologist Stanton Friedman, an interview in which Friedman will set the stage for us regarding U.S. worries about UFOs and their reasons for covering up the stories. We'll cover Frank Ficino's research, and that of others, on UFO activity and air wars over the U.S., which eventually resulted in the Braxton County Close Encounter in September of 1952. In the next episode, we'll cover the U.S. government's position regarding UFOs, then and now, and their concern that Russia or German scientists then might have been behind the UFOs, either creating them or even possibly having formed an alliance with an unknown extraterrestrial power. That's not what was happening, but in those years following World War II and in the wind-down of the Korean War, the United States defense system was on full alert for anything. We'll also cover the story of an Air Force jet with pilot and co-pilot that disappeared in pursuit of a UFO off the coast of Texas the same day as the Braxton County Monster, September 12, 1952. All coming in the next episode, The Year of the UFOs, Part 2. UFO Swarms Over D.C. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed Part 1 of the Year of the UFOs, the Braxton County Monster, and that our story has helped to add an accurate understanding of the Braxton County Monster Encounter. What a story! I had no idea when I started researching this that it would go in so many directions, and all of them interesting. I've got mounds of paper surrounding my desk which all need to be correlated and condensed into the next two parts of the story. I've got a two-hour interview with Stanton Friedman that you'll find fascinating. And, on another note, we just got a positive email from the author of The Jersey Boys, brand new book, who wants to share the story behind their new book with us. It's a World War II story. Hopefully we'll do that interview next week. We need your reviews, Apple Podcast listeners. Please take a minute to send some kind words. It could be about this episode, or about our show in general, or our podcast network, which just added its fourth show, Radio Days, to the mix. And that link is in the show notes, by the way. But I'll give you one right here, and I want you to try the show. 
www.1001radiodays.com. That's pretty easy. 1001radiodays.com. And that'll take you to our first two shows, and our third's coming out in just a few days. Radio Days will feature a one-hour episode every Wednesday and Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Next week, the cover of Life magazine in April of 1952, showing Marilyn Monroe's smiling face all over the cover. Next to that, in the upper right corner, there is a case for interplanetary saucers. 1952 was definitely the year of the UFO. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. We'll be back soon.